This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing The Outfit. It's my pick. And I'm going to start, because why not? Once upon a time, my mother and I were trying to pick a movie to go see together. I spotted The Outfit. Immediately, I was keen. It's got Mark Rylance in it. My mother didn't know who Mark Rylance is. He was in Wolfall and waiting for the barbarians. But my mother hadn't seen any of that. Nevertheless, I was able to persuade her to give it a go. The outfit is ostensibly a film, but it's really a short film hiding inside a movie. The short film is about craftsmanship. Rylance plays a cutter, a man who makes custom suits for gentlemen. Throughout the film, there are these scenes where Rylance talks about the craft of cutting bespoke suits. Every time Rylance cuts a suit, he tries to make the suit perfect, knowing full well that perfection is not attainable. But in pursuing perfection, he achieves excellence. Once a suit is excellent, he can live with its imperfections, precisely because he can try again, with the next suit, to do better. It's something of a Platonist account. There is this idea of the perfect suit, which Rylance pursues. He doesn't achieve it because the form of the suit cannot exist in the material world, but he can make better suits by trying to imitate the form. Rylance chases perfection, but he is not a perfectionist. He has total mastery over his attachment to the form of the suit. He can pursue the form, but once the suit is finished, he can let go of the idea that it can or will be perfect. At one point in the film, one of the suits is ruined. He doesn't become angry or frustrated. There's a moment of sadness, of disappointment, but then he lets go of the ruined suit. He moves on and attaches himself to the next one. When Aristotle talks about the virtuous craftsman, this is surely what he means. The virtuous craftsman pursues the good, but in a moderate way. The pursuit of the perfect suit does not mean making the same suit for every person. Whenever a customer comes into the shop, Rylance must make a suit that suits them. The perfect suit still has to fit the person wearing it. It has to be adapted to suit its context. The perfect suit is therefore not one specific fixed suit. It changes. Superficial critiques of Plato often frame him as a dogmatist, but when Plato discusses the good, he discusses sailing. A ship captain sails a ship differently depending on the conditions. The virtuous cutter cuts different suits for different people. What makes the suit excellent is not its raw substance, but the way it fits the wearer. This short film about what it means to pursue excellence through a craft would have been enough for me. But if it were a short film, it would not have been playing at an Indiana cinema. The only way to get people to see it is to position the short film within some larger drama. This means that Rylance's short film about the craft of cutting must be intruded upon by an exciting crime story. Some of the people who buy Rylance's suits are mobsters, and there's a snitch, and a bunch of other things happen. All of this is done well, it's well shot, and well acted. But I have this sneaking suspicion that for Rylance, the whole point was to get people to see the short film. You see, in real life, Rylance is a pacifist and a Corbinite. Many films are violent. The outfit certainly has a lot of violence in it. Rylance often likes to play characters that seem out of place in these situations. He plays principled people in unprincipled scenarios. In many of his films, capitalism and imperialism and political and criminal violence occurs. But then there's the Mark Rylance character doing his level best to stay the hell out of all of that. It's almost as if he's in these films to suggest to the audience some other way of being in the world. This makes it a bit sad when, at the end of this film, Rylance's character is forced to resort to violence. But right as the film is finishing up, the short film is finishing up, too. Rylance tells us about how you have to accept that the suit will never be perfect, just as the film is ending in a deeply imperfect way. Rylance and the film seem self-aware. They know the ending is commercially necessary. The film won't get shown in theaters if it's not bloody enough. But they also know that by acceding to this demand, they've made the film less perfect. They are willing to accept this in the hopes that the film's commercial success will give them another chance to try again to make a film that's better than this one. Unfortunately for the outfit, the film has only made $3.5 million. Despite all the concessions made to the market, 
It's not being seen by very many people. My mother wouldn't have gone to see it if I hadn't pushed it. And I only pushed it because I'm one of the handful of people who knows how good Mark Rylance is. The virtuous filmmaker makes the best film, while the vulgar filmmaker makes the most popular or the most pleasurable. There is a short film inside of the outfit that is a virtuous film. It would be excellent on its own. The full version of the outfit is less good, but still solid. What about the version of the outfit that would have made a profit? I bet it would have been dreadful. It's hard to make virtuous films in a vulgar world. So what should Mark Rylance have done? Should he have made the excellent short film? Maybe, but I think even fewer people would have seen it. Once the outfit comes to streaming platforms, more people will give it a watch. It will never count as a box office win for Rylance or for the director, Graham Moore. But in the years to come, more people will run across it, and more people will think about the craft of cutting and their own work and how best to relate to it. I like to think about young men who might pick the outfit for the guns, stumbling across ancient wisdom about crafts. That makes me smile. It makes me feel like all the film's compromises are worthwhile. But is that enough for Helen and Nina? I'm not so sure. Let's hear from Helen first. Okie dokie. Well, I actually loved this film. I thought it was fantastic. And there's various reasons why I liked it. I mean, there were uh, some limitations. Nothing, as you say, Benjamin can ever be perfect because we live in an imperfect world. We can't have on without off. We can't have light without dark. We can't have uh, yes without no. We can't have anything of substance without antagonism. So, and a, a filmmaker obviously has a task of creating reality the best um, extent that they can convincingly do with all these sort of limitations, but it's never going to be perfect. And um, I am just finishing a documentary at the moment that I've been sort of fitting into other work. And was met another documentary filmmaker for Coffee Today, and he said, documentary films are never finished, they are abandoned. So, uh, you know, um, and, uh, you know, this is something that uh, documentary is obviously different from the recreation of reality. It's more of a comment on reality. Um, but yeah, we do try to have this sort of hermetic, hermetically sealed um, object as a director. But I did think craft-wise, in terms of storytelling, it was really impressive. Um, you can't, you, as I say, you cannot make anything perfect. You cannot square the, square the circle. And when we talk about ideological films, obviously, often they are so good to talk about because the antagonisms that they try to repress are so evident in the body of the film that they're so juicy to talk about. And sometimes really brilliant films are brilliant because they have antagonism within them. But um, this film, and this is by an Oscar-winning uh, screenwriter, Graham Moore, who won the Oscar for um, The Imitation Game. And I think this was his first a film as a director. And, you know, as a, as a first time, obviously, he had access to lots of resources and, and lots of you know, really talented crew and stuff. It was, it was very, very good. Um, and... It was crafted, you know, uh, very noticeably crafted as a screenplay. It had um, almost the feel of a play within one location. It's very difficult to pull something off in that location that's this tense. But also, I mean, it was interesting because it's a crime story. Really, it's a detective story. And, you know, it's not the most unobvious revelation. There are some interesting twists and turns. I mean, there's huge twists and turn turns. But to write a sort of detective novel, you have, well, I mean, any kind of like um, nar engaging narrative fiction, I think one, I mean, I always start with the, the um, plan of the antagonist, and I won't say who the antagonist is, but then you disguise it. And the most cerebral form of uh, narrative is a detective story where it is basically all plan that is hidden and then gradually the audience comes to understand the plan. Um, whereas action is much more um, focused on the action of the protagonist that's trying to, um, that's coming up against the antagonist whose plan is maybe not as concealed. But just in terms of concealment, what this film really made me think about was the idea of um, psychoanalysis versus depth psychology. So there is this sort of uh, misconception of psychoanalysis that it's about what is going on underneath, that there's something under and hidden. Depth psychology, which is more to do with Jungian analysis, is different to uh, Freudian psychoanalysis and the sort of heirs of Freud, because for Freud, the unconscious isn't something hidden and underneath. It is right there on the surface. So, you know, we are who we are. We are our mask. We are our outfit. 
Obviously, as everybody who listens to this podcast knows, I'm obsessed with Tammy Faye Baker. And one of the reasons why I'm obsessed with her is because she, like a, a drag queen, she's a, she's a woman in drag. She has this camp excess in her mask that is really her. Her identity is the mask. And there's um, various times in her life where, and she's followed by documentary crews, um, she's asked to take off her makeup. And she can't because it's tattooed onto her face. Um, there's a really good uh, documentary called Tammy Faye Death Defying about one of her battles with cancer. And it's a really sweet film. And she talks about what she hopes will happen after she dies. And she says um, what she thinks heaven will be like. She says, I hope there's gigantic shopping centers in heaven and there'll be no more, uh, no limit on your charge card. And the Bible says there'll be no tears in heaven. So I won't cry anymore. And I hope there'll be eyelashes in heaven or God won't know me because she is her eyelashes, like there's no, there's nothing beneath. And so sometimes when we think about like um, the mystery of ourselves and well, first of all, how psychoanalysis functions is that the other knows us more than we know ourselves because we are an agent in the world and we exist in the eyes of the other and we exist in community with the other and we exist through language, which is a, um, a, a linkage that links us to the other. Well, I mean, it's a, because there is no linkage, it's a linkage. We go to analysis and we are read by another and our symptoms, which are all on the surface, which are all there, are interpreted by the other because they can see just we we can't see. It's always it's all hidden in plain sight. Basically, there is no the unconscious cuts across reality and that cut that tectonic um, like two tectonic plates. They rub against each other and something is generated. But who we are is there in our Freudian slips in our appearance, in our language, in our actions. We are who we are. I mean, in a sort of A equals A kind of thing, there is always antagonism, but in saying we are who we are, that shows that we aren't who we are. But anyway, um, so just like in the outfit, again, I mean, like spoiler alert, it's all there on the surface. The outfit is... Well, okay. I feel like if I'm going to say any more, it's going to be a spoiler. <laughs> and I don't know if you want to be spoiled, but I've, I thought it was kind of obvious, basically, watching it. So, but there is no, there is no big other. There is no um, gaze of the big other staring down at us, whom we have to fear and to whom we have to respond and who is there to guide us. There is no transcendent essence of another. There is just what there is in reality, in material reality. And it is the antagonism within reality, the lack within reality that generates us, that generates our symptoms. And our symptoms are there on the surface to be interpreted. All right. Nina, did you like the outfit? No. <laughs> I'm sorry, Benjamin. Once again, our aesthetic tastes are at war. Um, I Well, actually, I, I it was only in the cinema. So, of course, I had to go and pay and see it. And for some reason, I ended up at a, a very expensive cinema. Maybe I just don't go to the cinema often enough. And I hadn't realised how unbelievably expensive it is to buy two tickets uh, on a Saturday night at a, you know, fairly nice you know, cinema. I think it was like a Curzon or a Picture House or whatever, one of these sort of middle class cinemas <laughs> that litter the city. And uh, so having paid something like thirty six pounds for two tickets, I was I was I was sort of annoyed <laughs> already, despite the plushness of my seat and the fact that you could slightly push it backwards. Um anyway, it's 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 incidental. I, I, I suppose in some very petty way, I found the play on words of the outfit, as in both referring to a suit and a sort of gangster organisation, um, really annoying. I, I just thought this is a silly idea someone had on the back of an envelope and then decided to make an entire film about this silly pun. And uh, I mean, it's not, that I, it's not that I don't like puns and obviously I'm interested in polysemy and, you know, all of these different significations of words, but... But for some reason, this one I thought was a bit petty. And um, I, I like Benjamin's idea that this was actually a short film about craftsmanship. And But I, I wondered in the way, Benjamin, you were putting it, it's like as if Mark Rylance was in charge of the film or something like this, as if this was like the desire of Rylance to to make this short film. Whereas I, I didn't get that impression at all. I, I mean, Rylance is a great actor. And of course, he plays this multifaceted character in this 
film. I mean, very well, as you say. I know, you know, this film is very stylish. The, the suits are very beautiful. It's very claustrophobic. It's like a theater. You know, everyone's in the same room. It's very well done. It conjures up this atmosphere of the period, this kind of Chicago gangster, Bugsy Malone type thing. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of quality in that sense. But I, I felt that the, the implication was that you were supposed to imagine that this film was so carefully constructed that it was like the, the suit of the cutter, you know, that there, and that, that somehow I felt that this was kind of, um, sort of manipulative. You know, that you were supposed to sort of go, well, it's so, it must be put well put together because this is a film about putting things together well and, and hanging well and, and all of these things. And, and were I a mean film critic, I would have said that this was, this film was, was off the peg rather than bespoke. Um, <laughs> and turned its horrible pun a background on itself. Um, so I, I didn't really enjoy this film. Uh, I, I sat there for the whole time with somebody else who's, who's very opinionated about everything that's ever exists. And he didn't like the film either, which also kind of colored my impression, I have to say. Uh, it's, it's difficult sometimes to, uh, remove your own critical interpretation from that of somebody else, especially if they're very forceful. And, you know, and a lot of my writing is critical. So you'd think I'd be quite practiced at this. But actually, I think we are often very influenced by the people we're with in the sense that we also want to get along with them and, and you know, find detail and interest in their criticism. Um, so I may be being swayed here by the company I, I keep. Um, things about the film, I suppose I did like it in the sense that I... I agree that the uh, there's something kind of brave about making a theatrical film, right? In the era of um, CGI and you know massive amounts of money and production, and you know this kind of overwhelm uh, thing that Hollywood wants to try and do at the expense of plot and character. So I liked the old school return, you know, the, the it was like David Mamet or even sort of Beckett with guns or something. Um, you know that that I appreciated it. I appreciated it as a gesture within the medium of cinema itself, um, because I think cinema is one of these is is a mixed medium. You know, we still haven't understood cinema properly. Cinema is the site of dreams and fantasy. It's the it's the most psychoanalytic medium we have, but it's one that also incorporates all of the other ones in all of the previous ones. So I think Badiou and others talk about cinema as kind of an impure mixture. Um, but, but very powerful for that impurity. It's like our contemporary opera. It's like Wagner would have been <laughs> in relation to, I don't know, plain song. You know, it's like the kind of most extreme combination of sound and image. And so to do something restrained within that, I think is, is a brave and bold gesture, you know, in the, in the, confronted with this, you know, deluge of you know the excess of cinema which most people seem to be unable to restrain themselves from indulging in so in th in that sense i i did enjoy the precision and i i did very much like the the short film aspect i i thought the first 10 15 minutes were very beautiful and 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 provided material to reflect on um and what it means to live in an era of mass production and you know but also more complicated things about you know making a beautiful garment for a terrible person for example you know what does it mean when when somebody um can pay to disguise who they are and can you really disguise who you are and it goes back to helen's point about the mask and then you know being unable in a way to 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 fully separate out the the two and and obviously the violence character himself is is remains mysterious you know enigmatic in the way that we all that we all are um i thought there's a little bit of playing on the trope of the villainous British, <laughs> um, which always turns up in American cinema. But actually, I don't mind that. I think there's a power in being, you know, this sort of this sort of evil, clever, eloquent person who's a bit eccentric. Um, and, and so I enjoyed that too. So, so maybe I didn't dislike it as much as, as much as I claimed at the beginning. Maybe I'm, I'm moderating my view as we, as we speak, but I, I certainly, I, I thought the the mystery could have been more mysterious, and the the twists could have been, you know, more stylish, perhaps. Yeah, it's interesting because it was that kind of um, somewhere between um, 
you know, a, a popcorn movie and something more thoughtful, something more potentially art house. But it really wasn't that art house. It was thoughtful in a way, but it was um, not quite as thoughtful than I think. I think something really, really, truly interesting could have been done, but I still enjoyed it. But it wasn't, you know, there could be, there could have been something, not to say that like, as I say, like a film is never perfect and who knows what somebody's intention was or whatever. And one can imagine what one would have done in a similar situation. Um, but, and of course, as you say, Benjamin, it's like um, getting to an, a good and a very good rather than a perfect means you have to make another one, which is great because what is there to do other than to make? So be grateful for things not turning up perfectly. Um, but yeah, no, it really felt like it could it could have been like, and it is interesting, like, is how, in terms of the way the uh, market, I say market because I'm just not sure about this idea of bringing a market system anymore. I'm just not sure. <laughs> We're in some form of market system, maybe it's sort of getting different every day, but like in terms of what is viewable by people and what people desire to watch and what makes money and things like that. And I have always historically thought that like, you know, if if the craft is good enough or something's beautiful enough, that will um, access something, or if you um, make a narrative that's convincing enough. But I, di- I think because of the illogical forces of the market, that's just not true, and people aren't presented with things that they would like to see um, that often. But I, yeah, I think that there is something that 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 could have been done in a in a philosophical sense. But I still did, I still did enjoy it. Yeah, it's been hard for me to find movies I want to see in theaters. And I like going to my little podunk Indiana movie theater when I can, when I can find something I want to see. And a movie with Mark Rylance in Indiana. And not one of those big blockbuster types. He's done a few of those. I don't really, most of those I don't go to see. I guess... I know that Mark Rylance doesn't have control over the form of the film. I, I'm kind of imagining Mark Rylance sitting there, being Mark Rylance, reading over scripts that people have sent him, and going, how do I be Mark Rylance in a movie? <laughs> uh, and, and thinking perhaps about this script in this way. I'm projecting this onto Mark Rylance, imagining that I know him based on the kind of people he always seems to play. And the fact that he's a pacifist and he's a Corbinite, I'm imagining that I understand Mark Rylance, which I'm sure I don't. I wish that I did, though, and it's part of why I always like to see his films. There's something about Mark Rylance I want to understand. It's interesting because, like, um, well, first of all, I think you're right in saying that he probably did have some creative influence. And, you know, his discernment is part, you know, his his choice to participate is a creative choice. Um, And he as well in being himself bring something, you know, we were talking about with June, the face and the casting based on the face, but there is obviously as well, this idea that actors play themselves. I don't know what Mark Rylance's character is like in real life. Maybe he's not like that, but he, he part of like the casting is a character choice as in like, he brings with him the history of all his other characters that we transferentially project onto him with all these sort of characteristics. So there are these people that play the same. I was just watching, um, the there's a uh, series on we we work. I don't know if you saw it with um, Jared Leto and Anne Hathaway. And there's a guy who plays a, a financier who gets behind we work, who is sort of you know drinks the Kool Aid. And it's the same actor who plays precisely the same role in the Anna Delvey Shondaland um, mini series on Netflix about. Anna, I can't remember what called, Inventing Anna. And he, he plays the banker who finances her, well, who, who gets her loans approved without the right conditions and drinks the Kool-Aid. Good. And it's exactly the same actor. It's the guy that played, um, oh God, I can't remember his name, actually. He was a bald actor who was in ER or something years ago. But he is exactly, like, it's exactly, it's like the two series released within like a month of each other. And it's exactly the same character in New York, you know, a banker. Having exactly the same. So, yeah. Yeah, and sometimes people are typecast and they don't really get a choice. This is just the only kind of role the market will allow them to play. But I think Mark Rylance is special enough. Mm -hmm. I'd like to imagine that Mark Rylance really does have a choice about what he does and that his roles reflect (laughs) what he tends to choose. 
But it's but the the production will go to him with the hope that he'll bring his Mark Rylanceness and the you know kaleidoscopic infinity of projection that brings to the project. Is it like a casting is really it's really interesting, you know what it what it brings. But I'm interested because obviously uh, you Nina gave us your reasons why you well you didn't know who Mark Rylance was, but like why you would like the person like Mark Rylance. But what is it about Mark Rylance that you like, Benjamin? Well, my mother didn't know who Mark Rylance was. I knew. She didn't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Why do I like Mark Rylance? Uh, I think there is a kind of... When you're a young man, and I think I'm still youngish. Definitely. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of middle-aged men in movies represent versions of you that you could become in which Mm -hmm. you're old, but, you know, maybe you're not decrepit or senile, but there's something that's been added by experience. Established. They're established. Yeah. They're established. I think a lot of young men uh, like movies with middle-aged men where the middle-aged man has a set of capacities or virtues that have been produced through experience, uh, imagining that maybe their life will somehow work out in such a way that they'll have some of those qualities. And Rylance in particular, I like because he's so gentle and so careful and so kind in so many of his roles. And often he's in these put-upon situations. It's not as if the society has become a better place. You know, and I don't think when I'm 50 or 60, the world will be a better place. But maybe I'll be able to move better in it, uh, mm. more wisely or more, or more thoughtfully in it. Like, I, I think, I, yeah, yeah. We, we discussed this before in relation to sort of masculinity and sort of depictions of men. And, you know, and I, and I you know, we, we, we worked out that Mark Rylance is basically my father, you know, this, this kind of man <laughs> who is indeed extremely gentle, extremely careful, extremely precise. And I think often um, neglected as a type, you know, in, in a world that's very pushy and, you know, and, and, you know, my father is someone who is extremely um, beloved by a small number of people, but has no uh, desire or interest in, uh, I don't know, uh, I don't know how to put it, like uh, uh, shouting from the rooftops about anything. You know, like he, he his concern is absolutely local and familial and, um, yeah, c- civic somehow. Um, and and everything he does is 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 I think very conscientious, and he's a very good role model, um, you know. And and, and he, of course he's part of the reason why I wanted to 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 write this kind of quasi defense of men, or at least reasonable, balanced <laughs> book, um, because there are men like my father, um, and I, it's important that there are precisely for this this kind of question of social reproduction, actually, at the level of the virtues, at the level of. Um, permitting people to become who they are in, in the best possible sense. Again, not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But to encourage certain values rather than, than others, um, which are socially beneficial for everybody. Yeah, and I think it says something about where you're at as a young man in your kind of development. Uh, which middle-aged men do you view as kind of fascinating when i was younger i liked you know hugh laurie and house you know and like a lot of teenage boys you like the man who is able to be uh, a bit of an asshole but get away with it Mm. just the idea that one day you might be able to get away with it Uh, but i think it speaks to my evolution that i am not enraptured by that kind of man but by mark rylance Mm. i think it says something positive about where i'm at at 30 that mark rylance is the kind of person that i Mm-hmm. Yeah, the characters of Mark Rylance, that's kind of what I hope to to manage. I don't expect to make the whole world a better place mm-hmm. uh, by myself and be a hero. I don't expect to get away with being an asshole, but maybe I can just be a little bit wiser and, and move a little bit more gently through the world. Mm. Yeah. And I there's think, another... Yeah, this, this question of precision as well, yeah, I think, yeah, is really this, important. Right. And... There's another film that he's in that I saw recently, Waiting for the Barbarians, that I mentioned, which is is not as good as the outfit. I thought about picking it, but it's not quite as good as a film. Uh, Johnny Depp is in it, interestingly. Is this the one about the man dying? 
This is the one uh, about the man who's kind of a governor of a border province in an empire, a kind of nameless empire. And uh, someone is, is sent from the capital to inspect how things are going. And uh, th this is the Johnny Depp character who's sent to inspect. And the Johnny Depp inspector decides to go off and start a conflict with the indigenous people of the province. When the governor has done this careful job managing relations, and in the span of a, of a weekend, Johnny Depp completely destroys the relationship between the provincial administration and the indigenous people, uh, creates a conflict. And at home in the capital, Johnny Depp's party has been saying the conflict is inevitable, you know, Johnny Depp's faction. So when he comes out there, he starts the conflict and then says, look, it was inevitable. Uh, and then the, the Mark Rylance character is put in a difficult position because he's trying to run uh, the province in a kind of peaceful way. And that has been made impossible by the arrival of this Johnny Depp person who deals in a, a kind of world of violence that is utterly foreign to the Rylance character. Mm -hmm. And the Rylance character is kind of sidelined in his own province and is reduced to a pitiful condition. And then, of course, the, the war that the... Uh, that Johnny Depp starts fails and the empire is forced to give up the province because of the failure. Uh, and the, uh, you know, the Rylance character is, is there after the army has fled and has left and there's been a whole uh, exodus. And, and yet the Rylance character is still there with the handful of people who remain uh, to try to figure out some way of dealing with the large army of people who are coming to get them that they're waiting for, uh, waiting for the arrival of the barbarians. Uh, a, a movie I, I quite like, really. It got more mixed reviews because it, in some places it's a little heavy-handed. And I think some people did not like the heavy-handedness of it. And also it had Johnny Depp in it in 2018. So there were always going to be people who would be inclined to negatively review it just on that basis. Uh, I like that one. And I like it similarly. The, the Rylance character is this thoughtful person who is... Running a province is part of an empire that is clearly not a perfectly just state or a perfectly good state, but he's trying to make the best of it for the people who live in the place for which he's responsible and, and doing the best he can, even though the best he can is, is not always good enough. But he doesn't allow himself to be morally ruined by the fact that he's ultimately unable to continue to run the province in the best possible kind of way. He finds a way of, of, of getting along and, and retaining intact who he is. And I think some people watch the movie and want to kind of make a critique of him as kind of trying to put a happy face on empire. But I think that misses what's interesting about the Rylance character. The Rylance character is a reminder that in every kind of state, even the bad kinds of states, there are these people who try to make things not so bad. Mm. Yeah, totally. And they're, nice people and laudable people, even if they are running a part a, a state that is overall uh, not a great state. A hundred percent. There's a lot of this binary critique of everything from uh, all, all of these systems. Um, and then, of course, there is a tendency that we put a happy face or, or that there is a there's an ideology that justifies um, things like empire and stuff like this. And this isn't I don't think we're making a point that empire is a good thing potentially at a, a given point in history, it's something that unfortunately, you know, takes place or whatever. But um, not that it's just or right, obviously, but that you have, yeah, this, this blanket critique from a form of sort of, I would say, uh, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to choose words because um, I will say the word utopian because I think the utopian critique of systems generates its own reaction. We've talked so many times that the utopian must sustain an enemy and becomes fascistic themselves. Um, but how do you be a reasonable person in an imperfect world? Whilst at the same time, we can have critiques, like obviously two things can be true at the same time, something's bad. And also, yeah, there's always a tendency to find, um, you know, the, 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 the wokeifying of corporate culture or the religious justification for um empire and feudalism and stuff like that but what does one do as a person <laughs> to be reasonable in a system that's inevitably yeah 
But I think that one of the th- the ways you do it is by not thinking of the system first in a certain sense. It's like, what can you do in the limited local interactions that you have <laughs> that at least doesn't make it worse? And, you know, because it's like when those things get out of hand, that's when systems also become evil, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, this is the problem with bureaucracies or institutions. It's like people start go along, going along with yeah. things that gradually accumulate into gigantic evils and they're just, it's just incremental so I, I think then, in a sense, the, I don't know, the morality or the ethical behavior has to take place, you know, at the most uh, local levels. But this mm-hmm. also becomes a problem, I think, when you, you get to the politics of sort of microaggressions, you know, where, where actually there is also an attempt, if you like, to kind of police every interaction, <laughs> but not in the way that I'm trying to talk about it. Not, mm-hmm. not in the sense of, of simply trying to be an ethical or moral person in your everyday interactions at work or in your job. You know, I, I don't know how to, how to put it. It's like both the, the idea of the system, the big bad system and the everyday have become yeah. negatively politicized. <laughs> exactly. And it's, it's like, of course, there is a problem of uh, responsibilizing everybody for their own issues. But we have this systematic critique that we have like the worst of both worlds at the moment, almost. But mm. the thing is, so we're going to talk about the end of analysis right on the B side. And this is something that I kind of think what is one of the political um, emergence of psychoanalysis, which, of course, is a personal practice, but it's public as in you engage your public. You open your surface to another um, not privatizing and hiding it. And the privatizing and the hiding is a tendency in life that can be profited upon because it is a, a border, an arbitrary border, something's concealed and you, the other seeks to overcome that border through payment or something like that. So, but the political thing is you come to realize that there is nothing other than that. There is nothing other than this, this outfit, <laughs> this interpersonal relationship and you sort of do start to feel this, if not now, when, if not who, if not me, who kind of thing. And you it can actually allow you to act politically, because, precisely because it's not, something is apolitical when it, um, I think, uses the veneer of something aesthetically political to prevent politics from happening, which is in the moment tarrying with the messiness of the universe. And trying to do whatever, I mean, do the right thing. What the fuck does that mean? Mm. But it allows you, because, you know, something political, something left wing is not necessarily aesthetically left or aesthetically political, but it is to do with dealing with reality on its terms and not for, because you stop, you stop believing in a transcendent promise. You stop believing in a, you know, just over the horizon, then I can sacrifice the here and now for that. And all you have is the here and now. And it makes you more yeah. capable of doing. When I was at school, we used to have to do CCF. And I was on this camp in Germany when I was like 15 years old. And there were, there were two girls and all these boys and the girls and this teacher in school. Um, we were sleeping in the showers and all the boys were sleeping in this camp outside. And it had rained a lot. And suddenly the boys were freaking out. And the only member of staff was this woman who was sleeping in the shower block with me and this friend who was called Charlotte. And I have no idea why the fuck we went on this trip. But anyway, um, the, the, like the strobe light in the middle of the camp, the big tent had fallen down into a puddle and had sent sort of electric shocks and stuff. And all the boys were like, what do we do? What do we do? And Miss Jones, who had a South Yorkshire accent, which I won't imitate, said, act accordingly. And we were like, what the fuck does that mean? And then we had to do this night exercise at a certain point. And you have, when you do a night exercise, you have somebody on duty and you have like the password where if somebody approaches, they have to say one, like the word is a challenge. And then you have to say response with, ask was act accordingly. <laughs> and this became this joke of, in CCF of like, act accordingly. And it sounds really dumb. It's like so many of these stupid like wisdom sayings that I have to say. It's actually quite true. <laughs> and when you, when you, something like analysis gets you to realize that there is no other, there is no, uh, no sorry, there, that was there are a lot of others. There are a lot of others. There's no big other. Psychoanalysis actually does get you to realize that there are other people, but there's no big other. Yes. <laughs> and there's no transcendent future. There is now. And there is you with your reason and nothing else. And other, you, you with your reason and other people in the now act accordingly. <laughs> 
Yeah, it makes me think a little bit about, <clears throat> sorry, still recovering from a cold, uh, Thomas More's Utopia and the Dilemma of Counsel in that book. This question of do you give advice to kings given that real monarchies are deeply imperfect and your advice will not always be followed and even trying to give advice might get you killed and the whole process of engaging with it might cause you to distort your understanding of what's good or what's beautiful. Uh, but of course, that whole book is written by Thomas More, who himself gave advice to Henry VIII. And in Wolf Hall, Mark Rylance plays Thomas Cromwell, who succeeds Thomas More in giving advice to Henry VIII. And it, it seems there, and you know, again in Waiting for the Barbarians, that the Mark Rylance answer is to try to do the best you can. Uh, even if that means you've got to get your hands dirty and be embedded in institutions and structures that are not perfect. Uh, don't hold yourself above it and wait for Godot, mm -hmm. because uh, the utopia doesn't arrive, Godot doesn't come, and you've got to somehow make the best of the, of the social structures that are in front of you and what they make possible. Totally. And I think that is the, the kind of political argument. Once you get over this perfectionism, then you can tarry with a system that is imperfect and try to squeeze what might be better out of its imperfections. Totally. And I think that, you know, we've talked about the quietest position a lot. And the quietest position is very tempting. You know, the news is ridiculous and social media is ridiculous and quote unquote politics are ridiculous. And I'm sure many of us have had periods of time where you just retreat and you're sort of above the fray. But it is a very unhuman thing to you know, to, to, to sequester yourself from human relations. And all you can do is deal with what is in front of you. Um, and okay, it's, the quietest might be better than the reactionary, right? <laughs> who who um, takes the system too seriously and in their own utopian way sets, out, sets up a, a direct opposition that sustains as an enemy the shitty system and themselves. And then you have this sort of like dialectical horror show so maybe Aquatus is better than that, but that horror show is still going on. And so if not now, when, if not me, who, who is going to, who is going to try to do something, you know, and that's really the self-sacrificial thing is to do something ethical. Yeah. Reminds me of when we watched Pig mm -hmm. and I think... You can watch Pig and you can say that Nicolas Cage's character, who begins living off on his own in the woods, uh, has just is just a good person and has just done the right thing. But I think it's more complicated than that. When he comes back to Portland and he meets his old friend and his old friend tells him he means nothing, his name doesn't count for anything. I think the kind of superficial reading is to go, what a self-centered asshole that guy is not helping Nicolas Cage find his pig. But there's also a, a point to it, which is Nicolas Cage's way of coping with the demise of his wife in that film, is to completely run away. It's not to reconfigure his relationship with the town. It's not to share whatever wisdom he gained from the loss of his wife with others. It's just to kind of run away. And by the end of the film, he's kind of been dragged back into things. And that's kind of good for him. Mm hmm at, at the very least, it gives closure to a lot of relationships that previously a lot of people just felt he walked out on them or abandoned them or abandoned the community. And so there's a some level of reconciliation there. Totally. Yeah. This film reminded me a little bit of Pig. Like it has it has a slight similarity. I think Pig does something very psychoanalytic and very philosophical in terms of getting uh, the Nicolas Cage to confront the gaze of life, essentially. But I think that, you know, the, the, this, the outfit is more conventional. It's a more of a sort of a conventional uh, detective story kind of thing. Um, but they are kind of similar. And I just, yeah, there are I, these yeah. pig moments in the outfit. Yeah. You're like when he's having the discussion with the mobster and the mobster thinks that the Rylance character is his friend and the, you know, the mobster uh, hands him his gun to look at. This is my instrument, my tool that I use. Uh, and they're comparing instruments and tools. 
And I think there's a there's a discussion where the mobster kind of suggests that he uses his gun to make to build a community that he's built something for the people of the area with the gun that he's used it to make something rather than just destroy. And it reminded me of a point comes out of uh, Hannah Arendt, where Hannah Arendt is, is discussing uh, violence as a kind of making, as a kind of crafting, as a tool. Uh, and uh, contrasting it with power, which for Arendt is acting in concert with other people, uh, using language to get other people to act with you, uh, to persuade them to do it through charisma, rather than make them do it through mere talk, words that are about forcing people to do things. A kind of difference between language that's about cooperating and language that's about making things happen through manipulation. Made me think a little bit about that. I'm not a big Hannah Arendt person. Some people are huge Hannah Arendt fans, and I think that Hannah Arendt's work tends to minimize the degree to which it rests on there being a group of people who do a lot of the making mm-hmm. that uh, don't necessarily have any path to engaging in political action. Her categories of you know, labor, work, and action are not that different from Aristotle's mm-hmm. categories. And I like Aristotle, uh, even though Aristotle is deeply imperfect in certain respects. Uh, but With Hannah Arendt, there is an attempt to occlude or paper over the problem with not everyone having access to the public realm by dismissing any attempt to fix that as the social, as some kind of non-political activity that is taking over politics, suggesting that programs of trying to ensure that people have access are over-focused on the economy and therefore not on the public realm itself. In doing that, she kind of dismisses and brushes aside a lot of important stuff and renders secondary stuff that is important. Uh, whereas Aristotle is much more frank and straightforward about how you create the realm of political action and contemplation. And it's through having a system of slavery, yeah. which he straightforwardly admits and acknowledges. And anytime students read Arendt, if they haven't read Aristotle, they miss this because Arendt's whole scheme is designed to talk past it. So it always has to be pointed out that there's an implicit slave system here that hasn't been discussed. I, th- I think it's interesting if you think about Simone Weil on this question of labor, um, where in a sense, labor is directly spiritual for, for Weil. You know, it's, it, it's kind of God's work. It's the only thing that you can do in the material world that has any spiritual signification, really, for, for Weil. And it, it, in a way, it kind of, it's almost like the, I mean, it's it's a kind of masochistic asceticism, but it 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 kind of does cut out the problem of of slavery, <laughs> because in a way you're the you're the person doing the thing. It's like there is no other class of people, there is no social structure. There's just a direct fusion of your action and your and the spiritual dimension. If you sort of I mean, of course, in in the in the need for roots, she talks about this as a kind of national project, as a kind of post war necessity of course no one listens to her i mean de gaulle mm. thinks she's nuts you know they commission this project oh, and it's we love like simone Fay. Yeah, but, I, know. I think she's absolutely fucking fantastic she's so she's like this little elfin slightly a word mystical obsessive lady who's just like so no, so just... masochistic and so like yeah, and the, the books are amazing, you know, yeah, the aphorisms and these, you know, these kind of Zen-like koans, yeah. like these kind of, you know, um, notes for reflection. But insofar as we can understand what she's saying about, about labour, I think it it, it is, it's never occurred to me, but it just in relation to what you're saying, Benjamin, one of the things that Vey is implicitly doing is avoiding this problem of the, you know, getting people to do things that you don't want to do and making them do it because how else do you have a, a functioning system? Um, by by, in a way, just reducing the, I don't know, the the movements to very minimal ones. There's 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 labour and there's the spiritual and that's it. It's and you and your body and there is no, you know, grey area of NPCs who are just doing all of the terrible labour. 
like you're working yourself to death so you can get to heaven (laughs) like it does make me think about craft right because I don't know about you Mm. but like my ideal life would be just working on my craft and not having to worry about (laughs) Helen Helen are you not falling into your promise of happiness utopian trap you know, escaping yeah, no, from the present no, exactly. into the no, future. It, no, and I also, totally am. I totally am. May I, I totally remind am, you? Yes. May I remind you, Helen? You know, mm-hmm. be careful what yes, you wish may. for. <laughs> <laughs> no, totally. I, I, hundred percent. This, I think, at the moment, I have like really reified my desire because, okay, the thing is, obviously, <laughs> one's desire. Do not give way in terms of your desire. Do not yield to it, but do not let it pass you by. You're in a, you're in a trap. And sometimes we are. We need to remind ourselves of what our desire is. Precisely so that we can suffer less in acknowledging our enjoyment in not getting what we want. But there is something about that aside, craft, I think, is a precise embodiment of this, where you are imperfect craft, where, and this is the, you know, the short film within the short, uh, within the film, where you are pursuing your, um, you know, you, you're creating, you're doing, you're laboring, you're crafting. In the knowledge that there is no transcendence in perfection, there is no perfection in the universe, and you do it, and you get enjoyment from the laboring, yeah, from the creation, and from the imperfection, which leads you to, again, engage in the craft. Um, but there is something very different about wage labor, <laughs> which, like, I mean, who can solve that? But there is something, I mean... And potentially I reify, I utopianize craft potentially. And I find it very difficult to finish projects. And I find it, yeah, because I don't want to give up doing it. But then I have to remind myself there's always another one. But I always fear that there won't be another one. But the thing is, I don't know, there's a contradiction maybe in sort of what you're saying, a necessary contradiction, which is like the imperfection of the thing is, is surely what leads you to make no, want to make exactly, another thing. Exactly, no, 100%. But the thing that I always fear... <laughs> Is that it won't have the opportunity to make another thing. Which economically you'll be yeah. shut out of the yes, opportunity. Yeah, to make that's like thing. my ultimate fear. Which I mean, again, is probably because I utopian. Like I was somebody, a student um, was has writer's block on his dissertation at the moment, and I was saying what I think are the two principal reasons why people get writer's block. Number one, they get caught up in planning, and sometimes, well, one of the reasons is you don't know what you're saying and you do need to do some planning, but then sometimes you use this planning and this research and this structuring to prevent engaging with the just messy boringness of writing. And people really utopianize the act, the creative act of writing. I find that I utopianize whatever I'm not doing. So if I'm writing, I'm not filmmaking. If I'm filmmaking, I'm not writing. If I'm writing, I'm not doing this stuff. If I'm doing this stuff, I'm not doing that stuff. Instead of being like, this stuff gives me the joy in that stuff. And that stuff gives me the joy in that stuff, you know. So it's it's all like a necessary antagonism. But writers often, because we do utopia, we do like utopianize creativity. And there's actually nothing that transcendent in creativity. I think partly because to be creative is a privilege under wage labor, where everything is so totalitarian, uh, sorry, utilitarian and the precise it isn't utilitarian but anyway that's another story um but yeah so i think that there's a lot of block that people feel in just the belief that in completing a project there will be some like transcendent experience of this is over me or this will lead to something or this will be the perfect expression of what i'm talking about and well this is i think the more the more traditional crafts that involve making something for somebody Mm. it's easier i think because those things are more distant from just art, uh-huh. right? And at one point in this film, the d- difference between craft and art is discussed. Yeah. Because those crafts, you're making a suit for someone. It's for a customer on a particular schedule. Getting it done on time is part of it. And then giving, letting it go and letting someone have it and having it come out of your life is part of it. It induces this more... Uh, it, effective relationship to work, mm-hmm. this healthier yes, relationship, yes. <laughs> but with the kind of, of more art framed, the crafts that are framed as forms of art, there is 
not this natural life cycle, right? With the suit, there are all of these steps to making the suit, and then you let go of the suit, and then you start another suit. With the film, there's more variety among different films, for one, in terms of how they are produced. You know, there's always a production section mm-hmm. on every film's Wikipedia page, because every film goes on its own kind of strange journey, and it's never totally clear if it will actually happen until it does. Right? There's no production of the section on a book. Uh, maybe the author will choose to tell you a little bit about what it was like to write it at the beginning, but they don't have to, and most people skip that. But with films, there's always a how did it actually happen element to it mm-hmm. that I think I, I have a great, adds to that. A great example of, in my of my own experience of, of the fusion of, of art and craft, which is I, I maybe I mentioned this story, but it's very short. Uh, I did poetry for hire with my friend Lev from Morbid Books, where you sit on the South Bank and you write poems for people who come up, and it, it, you have about three or four minutes. You, we use these old typewriters. Someone, some random tourist or person comes up, and we say, "Oh, what would you like a poem about?" They pay whatever they want. By the way, there's no set fee, so sometimes people will give you like five p, which is really annoying. Um, <laughs> But anyway, you you you, you give they they give you a theme and then you write a poem and then they you read it out to them and then you give it to them and then they give you like a pound or something. And there's one time there's this American couple and they came up and they asked for a poem about America. So I wrote this stream of consciousness poem about America and about Trump and strip malls and my image of America. And about two hours later, they came back and gave me another twenty pounds because they realised that they liked the poem so much. And they were so pleased that they wanted to like give me more money. And honestly, I'm not joking. This is one of the the nicest and most beautiful experiences of my entire life was writing this poem for two random strangers who then felt compelled after having been in another part of the city to come back and try to find me to give me what you know whatever recompense they could because the woman especially enjoyed the poem so much. And I thought this was so beautiful because you know something like writing is usually you know even writing nothing compared to filmmaking is a slow process of you thinking, you know, writing it, the craft of writing, the waiting for edits, you know, eventually maybe it will come out if it's in a book. Whereas this was so immediate. It was literally like word, poem, object, joy, you know, Mm -hmm, exactly. And and, and it was all done. (laughs) And it was, there was this, this supplement of their extra enjoyment. And it was, it was so nice. It made me so unbelievably happy. And I often think of this moment, you know, just, I don't know, is this nice thought. <laughs> this is why podcasting is so good, right? You just, because it's very, it's very informal. I, I actually was listening back to a podcast that I did, my old podcast, that um, for another project might be used to sort of archive. And I was listening, and th- that podcast I did no planning ever. Um, and it was with a friend of mine and it, they came on as a guest and actually it like in and of itself, it's funny cause you like for a film, you have to be so, there's so much preparation, there's so much planning, so much structure, there's so much like storytelling, there's so much whatever. It's so wrought. And then this was a podcast where it was just two randomers and we had a theme and we had a little bit of a, you know, let's talk about this and this and this, but actually there's something equally worthy in it as an entity, obviously like hardly anybody listened to it, but there is something about recording and putting it out that is necessary for the whole form and that is that it's worth doing well, also substack. So. <laughs> and it also substack i mean i started a subject because i was like i'm going to publish a novel on substack and then i was like i know what i'll do to stop doing that for a while i'll just put out all of the bits for the lack i've already written and then I'll, that'll put it off for like several months and now i'm like running out i'm like oh shit I'm going to have to sit down and do this. But like, I have had previous times in my life where I have absolutely no writer's block. <coughs> and I can just be like, blah, 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 blah. But these days, I don't have that. It's so annoying. I, I actually was thinking of going to hypnosis, taking not my own advice. And going to hypnosis. <laughs> uh, we should discuss that on the B side with the end yeah, of analysis and the beginning of hypnosis, going back to the beginning of yeah, where Freud began. To, exactly. <laughs> We yeah, should, because cocaine. the craft of podcasting means that we talk, we try to have the best conversation we can, but when the hour ends, we have to give it up and surrender what we've made to you, the listener, in the hopes that you will like it. And maybe, maybe you'll choose to subscribe and come <laughs> listen on the B-side. So with that, we'll head over to the B-side. Thank you guys so much for listening. 
and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.